Welcome to the Weekend Writing Podcast, where writers read flash fiction. Why am I here? It had to be obvious to Victoria. This kind of relationship couldn't work. Happy Valentine's Day, John. I'm Sylvain Drake. And I'm John Nedwill. Welcome to Season 3 of the Weekend Write-In Podcast. And you'll notice some differences in the new format, which we're calling Weekend Write-In Bite Size. John? Yes? Why are we inside a giant computer? I thought you got rid of all that supervillain stuff from Season 1. You said you wanted to do this bite-size thing, and I just thought computers have bytes and... Well, when I said bite-size, I meant small, not binary. So you better get rid of all this computer stuff. In which case, you'd better explain to the listeners what we're doing for this season. In season three, we're going to experiment with the length of the podcast and the frequency with which we produce them. So we might experiment with shorter intervals uh, or slightly longer intervals and slightly shorter podcasts and more of the regular full-length podcasts. Ghost Lover by Laura Mortensen. I've fallen in love with a ghost, my friend Victoria said. We were sitting in the Wayward Cafe having brunch one Sunday when she dropped this bomb. Victoria was an artist who loved steampunk and always fell in love with the wrong guy. If anyone I knew was going to be foolish enough to fall in love with a spirit, it would be her. I thought about what to say. It had to be obvious to Victoria. This kind of relationship couldn't work. Even if the fellow returned her feelings, there wasn't anything he could do about it. What ghost are you talking about? I asked. How did you meet him? I met him at Kel's pub. I enjoyed our tour there, and I've been going back for happy hour. One night I saw a fellow dressed in black sitting in a back corner. He looked so sad I offered him a drink, and that's when he told me he was dead. His name is Edward, and he was a writer. I wasn't surprised she had been able to see this ghost. She'd been exposed to the shadow figure during our tour, and this kind of thing can awaken psychic abilities in a person. I just wish she hadn't taken it as an excuse to make her love life even worse than usual. I'll have to meet this Edward. Did he tell you how he died, I asked? Not yet, but he did say he wished he could accept a drink from me. Apparently, he died with a hangover and still feels it. He's very sweet. He gave me a gift. How could a ghost give you anything? He doesn't have money or pockets. He told me where he hid a golden locket. She pulled it out and showed it to me. Who are the people in the picture? Are they related to Edward? She studied it. I don't think so. Maybe he bought it from a pawn shop. I was thinking it was more likely he had stolen it. The people in the picture looked like a wealthy 19th century family. They didn't seem like the type of people who would hobnob with a drunken writer. You'd be surprised at how many ghosts are con artists in their own way. It's not just mediums who pretend to be people's family members. Sometimes the spirit itself likes to play games with a person, and will tell a real medium they are Great Aunt Mildred. 
What makes you think this guy is sincere in his admiration? I asked. It's not just what he says. I got a fortune cookie the night before which said, You shall find your true love in an unexpected place. I rolled my eyes. Just be careful. A ghost can't hurt you physically, but they can be just as cruel as a living person. I held up my teacup. To love! Victoria and Valentine by Melanie McIntosh I wince at the sound of the door creaking. A quick glance reassures me, though, that he is still asleep in his tattered old armchair. Avoiding the floorboards that give the door a run for their money in the noise department, I pick my way to the little coffee table that came home with us from a holiday in Prague years ago. We never used to have creaky doors or floorboards, he always saw to that, making sure our little sanctuary was perfect. Now he needs a nap after removing the snow from the driveway, and the house's once pristine features are sagging. A bit like us, I chuckle, setting down the tray, carrying tea and the Victoria sponge cake I baked earlier. The teacups with a lovely rose pattern I fell in love with on a trip to Dresden about 30 years ago rattle. John opens his eyes, looks at the cake and smiles. Ah, you've been baking again. I'm a lucky man. He sits up and starts pouring the tea. After swallowing his first bite of the sponge cake, he leans back with a happy moan. Then he grins. Wasn't always that lucky though, he teases. I know immediately what he is referring to. That was 40 years ago. And I had never baked anything before in my life, I protest. And you had to go and try out your non-skills on your unsuspecting newly acquired husband, didn't you? I can still taste the mess now. And what about the homemade potato salad you served me when I broke my leg? I was hurting enough without a bad stomach, you know, I retort. Well... Who knew making a potato salad involves more than potatoes and salad cream? At least you could have cooked the potatoes first, John, I laugh. I still feel the starch wrapping around my teeth like cling film. I brushed my teeth for about 20 minutes after. I built you the little garden hut that you still spend hours in during the summer months, tinkering around with your flowers or your knitting needles, just to make up for nearly killing you. True. A quick glance out of the window gives me a perfect view of the hut, the lace curtains in the window drawn, and the roof sweating under the weight of the snow. And the beautiful Adirondack chair for my 30th birthday. And the new kitchen. I pause and lean forward. I love the life you built for us, John, I say, my eyes filling with tears. We've built it together, Marge, he interjects. Shush, Johnny, and listen. You've always tried to make everything possible, give me everything I want. And I know how much you miss her, especially now that she's moved 900 miles away. I get up. You can come in now, I shout. The door creaks once more. John's chin hits the floor 
and his eyes tear up a little. Daddy! Our daughter hugs him tightly. Happy Valentine's Day, John, I whisper. Double Jeopardy by Tom Walworn. I muted the TV and answered my phone. Hello? The man wants to see you. I'm busy. Now. I sighed, picked up the remote, and turned off the Law & Order Marathon. Manny, the man Manicotti, ran most of the crime on the east side, but his passion was for hot rocks. Manny collected stolen jewelry. He fancied himself a master jewel thief. I think he got it from watching too many heist movies in the 80s, but I never cared enough to ask. I found him, as usual, behind his big wooden desk in his too small office at the back of the ice cream store. Manny, I nodded, sit down. There was only one chair on my side of the desk. I took it. What can I do for you? He sat and stared at me. That was supposed to be a conversation starter. I'll try again. Why am I here? He nodded to the guy behind me who squeezed past me and placed a velvet bag on the empty desk. I raised an eyebrow. Manny made a swirling motion with a finger, indicating I should open the bag. I shook out a diamond bracelet. It sparkled against the darker wood. Recognize it? I should. I made it. Look again. I pulled the loop from my pocket and looked closer. You made the swap? Manny twirled his finger again and the thug dropped the second bracelet on the desk. It was identical to the first. I sat back in my chair. That's not good. You were supposed to leave the fake bracelet in the safe so the theft wouldn't be detected. That's the problem. You made the fake too goddamn good. When Huey went to swap them, he got confused, so he brought them both back. Since Huey was the thug standing behind me, I withheld my observation on his mental capacity. So you want me to tell me which one is the fake? I'll have the boys put it back tonight. I sighed and aligned the bracelets side by side. This is going to be interesting, since I made both of them. When Manny first approached me about creating a fake Bosconi tennis bracelet so he could steal the original, maybe I should have told him not to bother, that it had already been done. But the fact that my fake had fooled everyone for at least ten years now was a bit of an ego trip for me. Could I do it again? Also, the fact that he was willing to front me ten grand had just a little bit to do with my decision process. But it could all come unraveled if these buffoons didn't get one of them back where it belonged. As good as I am, I was not prepared to put my workmanship to the test against the world's best appraisers should the authenticity of the bracelet become challenged. So my instinct was to identify the original fake as the fake fake. The original would then go back in the safe, and Manny would happily be the proud owner of a fake Bosconi tennis bracelet lookalike. But then my damn ego kicked in. Could I fool everyone a second time? I hesitated, thinking. This one, I told him. What did you think of Double Jeopardy, John? I enjoyed it. It has a very good modern noir feeling to it. But I wasn't too sure about the start to it. The start seems to be a bit a bit distant from the rest of the story. Either it needs something to link it in or it needs or it needs to be edited out. I really like the whole concept of the story. I like the fact that 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 our main character 
made two fake bracelets. And so he's, you know, double crossing the East side, um, you know, the man, Manicotti. And I do like the noir feeling of it as well. It kind of, to me, at first felt a little bit like a movie script. And I agree, it feels there's a little, it's very, the beginning part where there's a lot of dialogue is I think very different from the last couple of paragraphs where it's more um, bulky text. I thought the the beginning, I'm sort of a big fan of opening lines for really short stories. And so while I sort of thought the first line was really mundane, I muted the TV and answered my phone, hello. I really liked that he said, I'm busy. And then he sighed, picked up the remote and turned off a law and order marathon because watching law and order marathons is like the opposite of being busy. So I thought that was really funny. Now, for me, that that starting that that those opening lines, like I said, were the weakest point. They have they have very little relation to the rest of the story thematically. Right. Yeah, I can see how you're just kind of they're just he's just kind of getting interrupted. I, I do think it he's trying to get it, you know, he, the line, I never cared enough to ask, um, you know, he fancied himself a ma- master jewel thief. I think he got it from watching too many heist movies in the eighties, but I never cared enough to ask kind of gives you a hint that he is maybe thinks he's above the man. Um, and I think that goes along a little bit with the fact that he's watching law and order and saying he's busy rather than talking to the man. Um, but I think the dialogues don't, the the beginning dialogue doesn't have any tags. And I, I think you could use that to kind of add a little bit more to build the world that you're in, to get a sense of where you are and who the people are, um, before you jump into it to show maybe more than tell a little bit about the characters. I think, I thought that came over very nicely in the bulk of the story though. Yeah. You have a craftsman who is very good at his job, mm-hmm. who has perpetrated a hoax for a decade that nobody has yet come across. And now he's and now dealing with basically somebody who is a thug and a, and a jewel thief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's now got the opportunity to, to put something over onto the, onto the man. And does he, you know, does his professional pride win out over, over his, over his instincts to, you know, to take the money and run? I got a little confused at the end about which one, you know, which, which one was the fake that well, he wanted to put back into the, into the vault. Some people like ambiguity, but to me, it was perfectly clear which one he meant. So which one do you think he meant? Hang on. I'm going to look at the story again. My conclusion from it is that the second fake is the one that goes in. Yeah, because he, the 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 big the big risk for him is to have the authorities look at the bracelet and the appraisers, yes. and so he's going to put his new fake into the vault um, so yeah. that he can fool the authorities for a second. And that's how I read it too, but yeah. I wasn't a hundred percent sure because the fake fake kind of was a lot of double negative fakes. <laughs> Of course, having it, of course, being wrong. You know, that's I think the, that's I felt as thing. confused as Huey did. I mean, maybe I'm just kind of more of a thug, right? Maybe. <laughs> no, no. This this is the thing with with some flash fiction that that the writers will leave the ending 
on a sort of cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. Often, the, often you don't really know, weird. actually, right? You don't actually know which one he totally chose. Yeah, often the ending we imagine is better than the, than the one that that the author would think of anyway. Yeah, at least to us. And I think too, I'm not. You know, there wasn't a lot of description of other than it was a a small office in the back of an ice cream shop, and you a picture of thugs that sort of have a Boston or New York accent. So in my mind, I had a lot of images, but. I don't know if everybody would get enough images. There's not a whole, there's not really a lot of description of the scene or description of what the characters look like. And I don't know if that's needed in the flash fiction or if it's okay just to, for us to fill in the blanks based on how they talk and and the scenario. Because it's flash fiction, authors don't have a lot of room to maneuver. This one, you know, the weekend write-in has a limit of 500 words. So keep the important words. Mm-hmm. We, we've all got an idea in our heads from watching tv shows and from reading other stories what uh, what you know what what a gang boss's office looks like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and yeah you know, it's it's one of the classic tropes i think mm-hmm. so once you've got that idea in the reader's head mm-hmm. that that this you know you know it's it's an you know it's it's an office you know the head you know the headquarters of 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 a of a criminal yeah and it's in the back of a shop somewhere you instantly start getting the idea about what it's like mm-hmm. and you and, get the sense yeah. of his his uh henchman huey without even him described being described as muscly and tattooed with hairy thing you know like you kind of you kind of just know what he look. he's supposed to look like and kind of stupid yes, yes. <laughs> yeah because uh, these things they aren't they aren't important to the story. Mm-hmm. What is important to the story is what goes on in the narrator's head in this one. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's where the strength of the story lies. So overall uh, impression. Overall impression, a good story, well told. Yep, nice, strong. And with that hint of ambiguity at the end that leaves you wondering, am I right? Yeah, I think I'm a a big fan of judging a book by not its cover, but it's like main concept. And I, I, I think the idea of, you know, fooling, fooling the, you know, sort of a double fooling, doing a fake fake is a, is a really unique and uh, interesting concept for a story. So I really like that. So we're agreed then. <laughs> Good. (laughs) Hang on, John. I just learned here on Wikipedia that a computer memory byte is historically made up of eight bits. And we have eight stories for this reboot episode. We sure do, but that could make the podcast monstrous. Tell you what. Let's go AFK and give them another few bits in two weeks. Is that one of those new computer gamer acronyms? Well, only if you consider the 1980s to be recent history. All right, fine. I wasn't a computer gamer then either, but let's make sure our listeners know that we'll BRB. Join us for part two of episode one on February 18th at midnight in London, as always.
Thank you for listening to the Weekend Write-In Podcast, co-hosted and produced by John Nedwell and Sylvan Drake. For more episodes and links to our authors, go to www.weekendwritein.wordpress.com. Royalty-free music by FussLineStudios.com, BBC Sound Effect Archives, and freesound.org.